Uh, today we're going to be um, moving ahead uh, into the early 300s and then uh, we're going to try to advance a little more quickly. Um, I can see it's going to be kind of a long study because, I mean, when we get to the characters of the Reformation, we're going to want to spend some time on that. Um, today I'm going to give quite a bit of historical background and, and kind of draw us into um, one, just kind of narrow our focus to one important lesson drawn from this historical stuff. So there's going to be some history here that may be a little boring or hard to understand. So I hope you'll track uh, track with me. Let me, I'm going to need a sheet to help follow along with you. I think I got one more. So we kind of introduce things here by just quickly saying how the gospel was spreading again. Remember that the gospel, uh, what method, I have a question there, what methods were used in the spreading of the gospel? Because there was just enormous church growth happening at this time, just explosive. Uh, we're talking about the mid-200s, late-200s, even in the midst of persecution under Decius and Valerian and some of these other Roman emperors. We still have ex just explosive growth. And, and so what methods was the early church using? And I just wanted to state this as an introduction. It has nothing to do with Constantine. He's our subject today. But it's just kind of transitioning into him. What were the methods, methods that the early church used? In, in the sharing of the gospel. What caused the church to grow? Because what we should be saying is, yeah, le okay, le if it exploded so much, right, then let's look at what they did and do the same. Okay, so what did they do? Okay, but I'm asking how, how what were the methods that they used to do that? What were the methods that they used to evangelize? Traveled? Okay. 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 Sending out missionaries? Okay. Debating and debating and intellect. James Kennedy telling him how to do evangelism explosion. It didn't take place in church services. Even Celsus, who's the, the, the one writer that we keep referring to as being so antagonistic against Christianity, says, boy, th this religion is not talked about. Uh, th this evangelism doesn't take place in church. Church was for what? It was for believers, for worship. With the, I, I almost feel like in the reading and studying, it sure seems like they celebrated communion every service that they gathered and they kicked out those who were not trained or baptized publicly they weren't allowed to participate in that service so the church wasn't for um 
evangelism. I think, I think the American church has switched that, don't you? Do you see that or not? In what ways? Okay. We know, we know names like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren, right? These are, these are very revered names in the evangelical world at large. Why are they so revered? Key is size. These guys are doing something right because they're huge. And Bill Hybels, when he started his church, went door-to-door asking unbelievers what they wanted in a church. Rick Warren designed um, what he called, I think he called it, uh, I don't know if he called it Sam. I, I, I remember reading the book, but there was a name he gave, the character, like Unsaved Sam and Unsaved Susie. It was something like that. Uh, that may not be right. But he wanted to figure out who that person was and design a church that would appeal to unsaved Sam and Susie. That's completely contrary to what the early church and what the church really has always done. This is this service. I mean, if someone gets saved in this service, we're not going to say, wait a minute. You can't you know, right. The gospel is going to be given, but we don't build our services so that people will feel comfortable. Uh, we don't. We don't uh, open a Starbucks in the back and turn the lights down low and play the music they hear on uh, WJLB or whatever the latest station is playing their favorite hits. And, and we, don't, we don't design the service so that they will feel comfortable. In fact, we want them to feel a little uncomfortable. kitchens, in shops, in markets, on the streets, and not by pastors, primarily, by the people who call themselves Christians. Decius was the guy who said, we're not going to make martyrs out of these people. We're just going to get them to recant because martyrdom, as Tertullian said, seems to make these churches grow faster. They revere these saints, so let's get them to recant, and then they'll recoil from those people. Um, But after he died, the church uh, experienced peace, and finally, the greatest persecution of all broke out under the emperor named Diocletian. Now, Diocletian was the first to divide the emperor into two administrative groups. There was Eastern Roman Empire and Western Roman Empire. And this is going to come into play a little bit later. I put a little map on your, um, on your sheet that kind of, I think it's this exact map, um, where it, divides, it shows the division. And then I, I need to go over this because it's, it's super helpful. So Diocletian was very worried about preventing civil war. This seemed to be the history of Rome. Um, where, where emperors would seek to desire power for themselves and they would take a look. I mean, look how vast that empire is. It stretches from Great Britain, France, all the way over to what is today modern-day Israel and Turkey. I mean, that's a huge piece of land that they're wanting to somehow have peace in all of that area. And so what he did is he divided it up and then appointed kind of 
what is known as tetrarchies or four quadrants or four, four different heads. And uh, Diocletian was one, and then I believe uh, the name of the other guy was Maximian or Maximian. What, what's Max, Maximian, okay? Now, here's how they set themselves up, okay? In the east, the, the top name was known as the Augustus. The bottom name was known as the Caesar. Okay, this is what the, were their titles. They're they, they kind of taking titles from Roman history. Even. So in the east, you look on your map there, the east, which covered you know, Carthage, North Africa, Egypt area, into Israel, um, up into, uh, I don't know what that would be modern day. Not, you're not into Italy yet, but what's next to Italy today? Anybody ha- what is that over there? Anybody know your geography? Okay, all those, all those Akistans and stuff, is that, that, that's a little further north? Anyway, you can, you can see how, how Turkey, probably Istanbul, and, and then to the, to the west, so, so Diocletian was, was the Augustus of that group, and Galerius was his Caesar. I, I, kinda, I don't know if I view it necessarily as a president-vice president thing, but it almost seems that way. And then in the west, it was Maximian and Constant. whoops, I'm going the wrong way, uh, Constantius, very important name for us to keep in mind. Okay, so these four guys were the Augustus and the Caesars in the hopes that this would prevent civil wars in the future because there was provided a succession. When Diocletian goes, then Galerius will just step up and the other three who are left would pick a fourth to replace them. Okay. Does that make sense? So let's say Constantius goes, he dies, he abdicates, whatever. Then the three who are left would replace him. And the thinking was that this would prevent the lust for power that had been evident in the Roman Empire so far. What do you think? Would that solve the problem? No, of course not. Of course not. They're just going to hate everybody and try to overthrow the other three and take over as sole Roman Empire emperor. Um, but there was peace towards Christians during Diocletian's initial reign. In fact, even his daughter and his wife, his wife Prisca and his daughter Valerius or something, uh, they were believers. They were Christians living in the, in the palace with him. Well, around 295, um, and I just have some dots there for you to fill in. Well, around 295, um, Christians began to be expelled from the army because it was feared that they would disobey orders. Um, this was initially proposed by Galerius. He's going to be the one guy that is going to begin this great persecution against Christians. He's actually going to go to his Augustus Diocletian and state that there are uh, especially problems in, um, in the army and, and amongst their troops. Uh, and because um, the ranking officers in those armies did not want their, uh, their troops thinned out by Christians leaving, they decided to try to make Christians recant their faith, and it just became uh, sus- suspicion really arose on the part of Diocletian that these Christians were beginning to form their own little group and they were going to try to overthrow him. So they, they over, over time, and I, I'm not sure exactly uh, what time frame we're talking here. This would be on page number two in our worksheet. They began to issue these edicts. This is Diocletian issuing these edicts. So they issued four. And they came at different time periods. This, this wasn't all happening at once. It was a gradual process of beginning this persecution against the Christians. In the first edict, um, let me move that over a little bit, all, Christ, all uh, Christian worship was forbidden, all Bibles were confiscated and destroyed, and all church buildings were destroyed. Uh, this was the first step in the edict that Galerius and Diocletian devised. Okay? 
And as this happened, conflicts began to grow. Because can you imagine people coming for us, wanting to burn our buildings and take our scriptures? What would be our response? Right? We're, we're not going to let them. Right, absolutely. That's absolutely right. And Christians did not want to do that. And so the conflict escalated. Right, you can imagine. Imagine uh, Roman soldiers coming into the church, well, there weren't church buildings, but coming to the gatherings and finding Christians and say, give us your sacred writings, give us all, you're, you're forbidden to meet. And what are you going to do with your scriptures of, the, of any that you have, right? There's going to be precious few because people are making hand copies of them at this stage, but you're going to hang on to them and there's going to begin to be conflict. What are we going to do against these people, right? You're not just going to give in, although some did. In the second edict, uh, again, not all at once, but in a process, uh, all pastors, all clergy, bishops were arrested and put into prison. Um, fire broke out in the palace of Galerius and he accused Christians of setting it even though some say he uh, was responsible uh, for the fire himself. And so this led to two further edicts. And again, Diocletian's suspicion uh, became greater, and even his wife and daughter faced his wrath, and I'll explain what happened to them in just a second. But the third and fourth edicts were the third, then clergy, not just imprisoned, now you have to sacrifice to the gods or we're going to torture you. And then the fourth edict in succession was now all citizens must sacrifice to the gods or you will be executed. And this is where Prisca uh, and Valeria, the wife and daughter of Diocletian, actually did offer incense to the gods to avoid being uh, executed. And so, I mean, we put ourselves in that position. We talked about the problem of the lapsed last week and Christians who, who give in and how should they be received. I think we had some good discussion on that last week, but they were in that position, okay? Um. Many did do what these edicts demanded while others suffered extreme martyrdom. Um, it had been a time of ease uh, for years at between Decius and Valerian uh, uh, and Diocletian. There had been a period of about 30 to 40 years of great ease for Christians. So when persecution came in again, what do you imagine happened? There had been a time of ease, and now the persecution is back. What's going to be the natural result? What? Growth of the church. There's, there's, really a two-fold, there's really a two-fold thing happening. There's growth of a church, but many, because they had enjoyed it so well, were like, hey, you know, we're not, and I'm making a point here that it's kind of giving you a hint to what the lesson is going to be. Hey, uh, it was easy. Um, now we want to kind of back away. Right? We didn't realize we were going to be forced to, do this and be executed sure we'll burn incense it goes all the way back to even people like daniel or daniel's friends shadrach meshach and abednego very similar position what are you going to do in that circumstance what are you going to do when they uh, when persecution hits and strikes okay uh so some uh were tortured and killed some hid some escaped indeed but this is a this is a severe persecution happening in 304 diocletian became very sick and here, here's where the history starts to happen. Let's go, let's go back to our little map here if we can. Okay, so Diocletian gets sick and he kind of abdicates his position. So Galerius moves up and he starts to want to tweak the four guys. So you got the four guys, Diocletian moves aside, Galerius moves up. And now Galerius is kind of seeing this as a time for him to kind of advance. Okay, the guy uh, in charge of the Western Emperor, as far as the, the Caesar, his name was Constantius, and that sounds a lot like Constantine. This is his father. Okay? He died 
and now you're looking to replace him. And Galerius was wanting to put his own men in these positions so he could soon become kind of the sole emperor. And that was thwarted because everybody liked Constantine and he replaced his father. This is how he came into power. And while he's out there in what, is, what was known as Gaul, uh, Spain, and Britain, he begins to start uh, mustering his plan to take over. He's going to be the one that wants, it's going to be him and Galerius really that are going to go against one another um, and, dis, and try to uh, become the sole emperor. In fact, when Galerius heard this, he went back to Diocletian, who was sick, and abdicated his position and said, why don't you come out of retirement because we need your help because we understand that Constantine is kind of mustering force. And Diocletian says, I'm having a good time raising my cabbages. I'm not interested in going back to the... I mean, it's fascinating stuff. Um, Galerius in 311 became very sick as well. And it, he was told by some of his people in his palace that it, he was being punished because of his uh, misdeeds against... Uh, Christians, this superstition that, well, kind of like karma, right? You're doing things bad to the Christian. It's the Christian God now that is, that is hurting you. And he began to relax some of the decrees, some of those edicts that had been presented and said that Christians could gather now, so worship is being restored, Christians could gather and they can, and they can, uh, they can pray, and I especially ask that they pray for me in my illness. Five days later he dies. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at someone perishing and going to hell, but it's just, it's just classic, this idea of superstition. Oh, we need the Christian God to take care of me. Uh, didn't happen. Meanwhile, Constantine is still working on gathering his armies, and this is where it gets very, very interesting. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge, um, but Constantine had, and, and we're skipping a lot of historical things because I think it would bog us down and bore us, and maybe we're doing too much of it. But said by historians, he's, he's going to go against his, uh, you can look back at your map on your sheet, against his uh, Maxentius or whatever, I forget the guy's name. But anyway, he's going to go against that guy and try to overthrow him and take total control of the Western Empire. And he comes to the Battle of Milvian Bridge where he's going to face this guy. And it was the night before. And he had these visions. Okay? And this is where many people believe that Constantine was converted to Christianity. There's great debate on that. And I'll, I'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. He saw this symbol in the sky. I'm sorry, it's black up there on the screen, but there's, I think I put a copy on your... That's known as the... Uh, is it known as the liberum? I can't remember, the, but it's the Cairo. It's the sign for Christ. The X is Christ, okay? And, uh, you know, I, in school, if I write the X on the board, kids are like, <gasps> you took out Christ. That's the symbol for Christ. I know people say Xmas, and in a sense, they're taking away Christ, but X is the symbol for Christ. And you have the Rho, which is kind of the looks like a P, but that's the Greek letter Rho, and Cairo are the first two letters in the spelling of the name of Christ. And so this became a symbol for Christ. Constantine dreamt that he saw that in flame in the sky, and it said, by this you will conquer. He had it emblazoned on all of his shields. Uh, this is another, not necessarily one of his shields, but it, what it may look like. It's an ancient symbol. And uh, this is how he felt that he would go into battle and have the victory. In fact, it became such a superstition that armies that faced him said, don't look at the, don't look at the liberum, or what, I'm not saying that right, but don't look at that because it has magical powers because Constantine was having great victory. And at this Battle of the Milvian Bridge, which was the day uh, shortly, either the day or shortly after he had these visions, he fought this other emperor who fell off the Milvian Bridge and drowned. And in doing so, Constantine took over the entire western half of the empire. So, the, the debate is, 
did he really become a believer, which we'll come to shortly. Another person by the name of Licinius came along, and they, this, this guy was one who took over as partial Caesar as well. We're just kind of skipping some of the, some of the um, successions of people who are taking over like after Galerius died. But these two guys, Constantine and Licinius, are both struggling for sole, em- sole emperor of the Roman Empire. And they agreed in 313, they did this Edict of Milan, which eliminated all of the persecution um, of Christians and said that their buildings and property would be returned to them. Okay, and that's a very important edict. And all of a sudden, the Christians who were being highly persecuted under Diocletian and Galerius were now free to do anything that they wanted. Now, let's talk about Constantine and his religious policies. I think we're, we're down to the bottom there. Um, as I said, he'd been preparing to expand his rule through friendships. He even gave his sister as wife to Licinius to try to uh, create an alliance there. Um, he challenged his rivals one at a time to, just to, to gain uh, the complete rule of the empire, emperor and empire. Get those words mixed up. And so he finally defeated Licinius and became the sole master of, of, of Rome and he believed in restoring the glory of Rome whereas every emperor who came before him okay so now in history it's about three uh, I don't know three late three teens in there all the emperors before him felt like Rome's glory was built because of allegiances to all of the ancient gods and Constantine because of his dream and vision by this you will conquer felt like the glory of Rome will be attained through Christianity. Okay? And he built this new city in, in Byzantium, renamed it Constantinople. It was going to be the new Rome, and this city would actually outlast the city of Rome for about a thousand years. The, the Western Emperor's Empire is going to fall when the Eastern Empire is going to continue to, uh, for the next thousand years. Barbarians would come in and take over the city of Rome. Now let's discuss his conversion. Uh, some more of his religious policy before we get to that, sorry. Um, he did say that uh, he did say that Christian property re- be returned and in 324, an edict ordering all to worship on the first day. That sounds really good. Um, it's not. I'll explain in just a second. While he was doing these things for Christians, he also was keeping one foot in paganism. The Roman Senate and, and, and the Western Empire still held, held great allegiances to these other gods, and Constantine didn't completely break from them. The debate to whether or not he was truly converted is, is endless. Remember I told you that at that time, for a Christian to kind of become part of a local church, there was a great deal of instruction and discipleship that took place after their conversion, before they were allowed to be baptized, before they were allowed to take communion. Constantine had none of that, none of that. Okay, so he converted at this dream, never took on any other training. In fact, he considered himself a bishop of the bishops. In fact, he's bringing about something called Caesaropapism. Caesaropapism, which indicates that the belief that the secular ruler, by divine mandate, also becomes head of the church. He called himself the Bishop of Bishops. He referred to himself as the 13th Apostle. He felt like, not only am I the political ruler, I'm also the leader of the church. Um, 
he did not have any authority, he, excuse me, he did not put himself under any authority of any other bishops. He continued to take part in pagan rituals even after his conversion, and the bishops did not complain. Why do you imagine that the bishops of churches did not complain that this emperor was, was, was proclaiming himself to be a Christian while at the same time uh, practicing pagan rituals? Why do you think no bishop rose up and said anything? Well, he's very, he's, very, he's very happy with Christianity, though. Why would they be in danger of any sort of persecution? He, he's, he's a Christian, or so he says. The bishops, as being as bishop of bishops, in a sense, sure, sure. A lot of the bishops didn't consider him to be a Christian, and they were just happy with the peace that was going on, right? It, it, it's, like saying, it's like us saying about... Uh, We've had this discussion over and over. What, what right and what authority do elders have in the lives of church members? Well, a lot, because you've submitted yourselves to our authority in the sense of the scriptural authority that we have. And if we see members of our church doing something amiss, beginning to live lives of conformity to the world, you know, absenting themselves from service, we have a responsibility and a right and an authority to confront members about that. What authority do we have over non-members? None. What authority do we have on, over unbelievers? Right? And that's what, that's what many bishops felt Constantine was. Well, why should we go to, to him and complain about what he's doing when many of us don't even think he's a Christian? I personally don't think he was. I think he just used Christianity as a means to advance his own, um, his own self, and I'll explain that in just a second. But at least he's being sympathetic to us, so why should, we, why should we complain anyway? If we complain, maybe there is a chance that he will change his mind on certain things. Um. Many believe, and I do too, in reading and, and learning about him, is that he sought not the goodwill of Christians, but he sought the goodwill of their God. He thought by doing good things he could get God to support him in his, in his political aspirations. Like I said, he ordered all to worship on the first day, but this was also the day that people worshipped the soul invictus. I talked to you about that last week. The, in, the unchallenged or unconquered sun. Uh, that was the main God that was, and so they gathered to worship. So people were like, well, okay, whatever, it doesn't matter. We'll, they can worship theirs, we'll worship ours. Um, there's such a there's such a con conversion of pagan and Christianity that coins have been discovered with images of the ancient gods on them, along with on the same coin that Cairo image. Right? I mean, everybody like to. Everybody thinks, and I thought that Constantine was the one who kind of mandated Christianity. He's not. He's not the emperor who did that. It's going to be later. Theodosius is going to do that. But Constantine was. Constantine was one of these guys. I like paganism and I like Christianity, and you can even see it in the coin. There's a coin that I saw online with the with the same images. Okay. Um, he did appoint Christians petitions in government. He did allow them to worship. He did donate money to have new churches built, yet continued, continued functioning with paganism. And this is ironic. Think about this. Days and weeks after his death, his three sons, who are all named Consta something, they all start with Consta, uh, did, not, uh, did not reject Rome making Constantine a god. Now think about this. I just said Constantine is this, foot in the world, foot in Christianity. Constantine is considered a god by the pagans and a saint by the church. Isn't that neat? I mean, not neat. That's his, that's his dichotomy. 
Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, very, very similar. And, and even I thought that when he gives his sister as a wife to make allegiances, it's, it's all exactly what Solomon did, alliances through marriage. That's why he had all these wives. Yeah, great point. Right, right, right. There is no question that whatever this vision that he, or experience that he had, changed his, his and it really changed the course of Christianity. Next week, we're going to talk about all of the reactions. I mean, these decisions that Constantine is making are going to have ramifications for the next four or five hundred years, and there's going to be all of these reactions. I'm going to quickly touch on them at the end of our lesson, but next week we're going to spend time doing that, and it leads to all of this intellectual debate. It leads to monasticism, where people are just going to leave the empire and go into the desert and wilderness and live as monks because they don't want to be connected to it. It's going to create the breaking off of another church. It's just, it's going to be insane, the, the, the ramifications. So there is no doubt that something happened to him. Whether or not he truly trusted Christ is up for debate, and I personally... I personally don't believe it. I, I think that's very interesting, though, that he's considered a god and a saint, right? He did not make Christianity the official religion of the empire, though he did favor Christianity. He, uh, he did not, uh, as I said, back and forth. What's interesting is, well, let, let, I'll, uh, this, is, this is where it starts to get fascinating, okay? What do you think the impact of Constantine's decisions would be, okay? He made these decisions. Worship on Sunday is, is now mandated. Uh, churches are being built, and he is even uh, funding some of that. What do you think some of the ramifications for Christianity are now going to be? I'm really curious to hear what you think. What I think I just put, what do you think the impact of these decisions would be? Okay. Sure, sure. What would be the obvious first impact of his decision? Okay. Yeah, because persecution is over. Number one thing, persecution is over. Persecution is stopped. Great. And so people are going to gather any other ramifications? I'll tell you, most of the ramifications are negative. Most of them are negative. Actually, actually, there is great growth, but... Absolutely. Absolutely. It's easy to be a Christian. It's kind of... It's, it's, it, let, me, let, uh, let, me, let me wait to give the final lesson because I want to I draw you to it over these next 10 minutes. Cessation of persecution... Church properties became tax-exempt. Folks, people weren't meeting in church buildings up until this point. They meet in houses and caves and swamps and woods. Now they're, now they're gathering in church buildings. There were advantages that were given to clergy, which led to arrogance and corruption. Um, there, is something, there is a new uh, thing that is developing called simony. How that, or is it simony? Yes, yeah, simony. 
Do you remember in Acts 8 when Simon Magus saw the guys laying their hands on and giving the Holy Spirit, and Simon says, oh, I'd like to do that. I'd like to buy that. And that became a, pra- a practice called simony, where people wanted to buy their way into the clergy because the clergy were respected and the clergy were, had these great advantages. Right? Um, there, there is ample evidence in this time of syncretism and superstition. Many tombs during this period are found with artifacts in there because Christianity became something more like a more like a magic feeling or superstition there's no threat to christianity christians began attending gladiator events christian christians began to attend plays they never did in the past christians could gather very easily and structures were built for worship but all of this i think i'm passing some of this stuff all of this worship was influenced by imperial protocol clergy began dressing in luxurious robes churches became ornate Buildings. In fact, Constantine was the one who ordered the building of the Church of Nativity in Bethlehem. They began building sites on all the tombs of the old martyrs. I told you last time that they used to go and take communion at the sites of the tombs of the martyrs because they felt like it was a greater religious experience. Well, now it became like, let's build a church on that site, and this, this place is going to become a place of sacred worship. Um, they, the, for the first time, people are kneeling in prayer. Um, because you're kneeling, just like kneeling before the emperor. This is, now, this is now going to become the posture for prayer. Choirs develop. The congregation takes a less active role in worship because it was all about pomp and, and procession, and uh, it became very ritualistic in that sense. Constantine's mother found the cross of Christ and uh, wood splinters from the cross of Christ, which claimed to have miraculous powers, were found all over the empire. Um, many people were coming to Christ. Dave mentioned it. Many people are coming to Christ because of the ease of coming to Christ. So what do you think happened with the intense training and discipleship program? That was abandoned. You had too many people doing it. So you have all these people coming. We have the church growing in great significant numbers, but it is very weak and there are false conversions. Um, any clergy that tried to combat some of this just couldn't make headway. Boy, does that sound familiar. Um, let, let's see if I got all this here. Uh, tax exemption, clergy advantages, simony, ornate buildings, luxurious clergy attire, syncretism, superstition, the attending of plays, the worship influenced by all these protocols. Okay. So, Constantine um, brought the church into this imperial age, and even when he then demanded that paganism, in a sense, be outlawed, the Christians began persecuting the pagans. <laughs> I mean, this is going to happen throughout history as well. What is the lesson? We've got about three minutes here. What is the lesson I'm trying to draw? Because it, it's not about just saying, oh, this is really neat what we learned about history. I know some dates and I know some edicts and I know some people now. What is the ultimate lesson for the church? What, what, what happened as a result of what Constantine did and what lesson do we learn from it? Okay, no question. Lesson number one. I mean, that's not the main lesson I'm drawn us to, but it's certainly one that we've heard today, right? The idea of, of partnering with paganism and partnering with Christianity just doesn't mix. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought about that, too, like, okay, the kneeling in prayer, I don't know that that's necessarily... 
a negative thing. It is something that was influenced by the imperial protocols. Um, but things like the congregation not being active in worship, I thought that was interesting, right? So much of what churches do today is performance. Come and see what we're doing. Like, this is church, what's happening up here. What happens down here is you just kind of watch. People are spectators. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, really considering, why, why are we doing these things? Yeah. 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 Right. Dave, you nailed it. That's my lesson here, okay? There is danger for the church in the time of persecution, but it's almost like there's greater danger in time of privilege. <laughs> like, the, what is the danger to the church in persecution? Physical. It's all physical. Is that, is that ultimate or penultimate, right? It's, it's not the... Is it, doesn't penultimate mean like it's the second to last, right? Death, death is not the end, right? Do not fear those who can destroy the body, but fear those who can destroy both the, the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, right? So, so physical threats are far less of a threat to the church than the spiritual threats that come in privilege and ease. How easy is it to be a Christian in 21st century America? Simple. Right? I mean, Obama and Trump would tell us that they are Christians. <laughs> right? I mean, 90% of the culture would tell us that they are Christians. So easy to be a Christian. There, there are no threats to it. Did you want to say? Well, persecution will. Ease actually grows it, right? Privilege actually grows it to the point where, where pastors are saying that the church is probably the greatest mission field. As far as there's so many people, someone else had a hand up. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Right. Right. It, I thought about like the Christians who endured a time of intense discipline and training and and learning about their faith before the bishops felt like they were ready to participate in communion and baptism and I, I just think of the of the opportunities that are available to us to come together and study and gather and and so many people forego that um, but it but it's easy it's it's so easy right I, I mean church churches make it easy come as you are right you you will be your children will be entertained while you relax in our service with your latte and and you'll enjoy our dramatic production and our band our hot band and our pastor who wears his chain down here and skeleton shirt i'm just i'm just shocked when i look at these pastors who walk around carrying a mic as if they're britney spears and they and they they actually are wearing jeans with holes in them or they're wearing a hat on backwards preaching like this somehow makes me relevant to the community like this is what the community needs uh, but but it's easy to come and and they're not going to hear something that is really going to challenge or convict or confront them as to i mean you, you read that we're going through luke and you read those those things that christ said unless a man will forsake his mother or count you know, and there's it, there's almost greater danger for us in in ease than there is in persecution what a lesson to learn 
and 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 I think it does give us insight into why Christianity is so flabby today. And Christianity is so weak because there is such a a terrible commitment. Yeah. Right. 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 Sure. Sure. If, well, we won't say that, but the many different reactions to this, we'll talk about this next week. We, we're out of time already, but we're going to talk about some of the reactions. We'll, we'll, we'll wait on that. And uh, it's going to be very fascinating what some of these people do. It's going to bring up greater problems. Arianism, monasticism, I mean, all kinds of different problems are going to arise from this. It's not like this is the glory days of the church by any means. But hey, let's just, uh, we prayed at the start. We had a great lesson. Let's remind those things uh, as we move into our worship service, okay? Thanks so much.